Welcome to Coffee House. Today, I wanted to talk about something that is near and dear to my heart, probably the most important topic when we're talking about policy, from a longitudinal perspective, and that's education. I had stumbled upon this post on one of these uh, social media conglomerates, and it was about the effects of a lot of our policies on education, like what the result has been of a lot of the policies on, on what education is and what it means and who's coming out of it. So one thing about education, and there are obviously a million different ways to talk about this particular topic and a million different valences to analyze it with, but there's obviously a big, broad context here that we have to understand that has been in the making for decades. There were government initiatives, free tuition, scholarships, race and gender-based scholarships, scholarships in general, diversity, inclusion, and equity centers and directors, etc. And all those things have had a broad impact on education in general. What's happened is we've had the democratization of what is supposed to be a meritocratic system. And democratization in this context means that we are just making it more accessible to more people, irrespective of other considerations. The same thing's happening in business, by the way, so (laughs) just consider that down the line what that's going to mean. But what's happening is the education market has been flooded with money, and when you flood something with money, you have inflation. If there are more dollars, the dollar does not stretch as far as it once did. And colleges and universities have incentives to raise prices. They are disincentivized from trying to compete with each other on pricing and on the value of their product because they have free money coming in from the government and all sorts of other organizations, but especially the government. And when it comes to education, you have this vast chasm between what you're, the thing that you're getting and you having to repay for, having, for that thing. If you buy a house, then you don't get to wait four years before you have to pay for it. If you buy a car, you don't get to wait four years before you have to pay for it. You have to start paying for it right away. But with education, as you're getting it, you don't have that. So there's this post on social media that was about the effect of the liberalization of education when it comes to the trend in IQ. So so today, what do we have? Really, education has been funding a more robust Dunning-Kruger effect for decades. So the average IQ of an American with an undergrad degree in the 1960s was 111. So that's above average. That's nearly a standard deviation above average. So that's uh, that's a good IQ. That's quality. And that means the people with those degrees are more likely to have you know much higher IQs. And when they get hired, they're going to function in significantly better ways from a number of different characteristics, not just the thing that they studied, but in a bunch of different ways. So by the 2010s, it was 100. So it had been reduced nearly a standard deviation. And that's just the average IQ. So the road to hell is paved with good intentions. In this case, it's not necessarily good intentions. The government generally just wants more expansion, and we need to stop thinking of the government as the thing that's got our backs. We need to realize that it's a necessary evil that we all agree upon and fund, but it has its own interests. You know, The government wants more money. More money means more power. More involvement in whatever institution, whether it's education or medicine or anything else, means more power. Not only that, government employees and administrative employees that aren't tied to value are necessarily going to have a natural bias toward more administration or more government control over sectors. So if you have a government job and you're getting paid well and you have, or you have tenure, you have a salary that's guaranteed, it's not based upon markets swinging up or down or competition doing better or worse than you, then you're going to think, okay, everybody can get a job like mine broader, the more employees that you can get, then the more likely they are to be biased toward employees of their nature. 
I saw recently there was a uh, a discussion about how spending spending per pupil has gone up dramatically over the last few decades, but pay for teachers has not. And when you look at it, when you try to figure out, okay, why is this the case, then you can see that actually support staff and other aspects of education have been broadened out dramatically. So you have far more people who are involved in being paid, but the teachers aren't reaping the lion's share of those benefits. In addition, you have things like uh, teachers' unions who are treating teachers like factory line workers as opposed to professionals. And so whatever benefit that teachers think that they get from having a more secure or stable situation, even if they have that, that's just assuming that that's what the union actually does, they are suffering a detriment of not having that kind of competition that irons out these kinds of processes. But the point is, uh, so the, the whole this whole diatribe has just been about the road to hell of being paid with good intentions, whether the government actually has good intentions. I don't think they actually do have good intentions. I think they just want to expand into everything they possibly can, because that's in their interest. But anyway, just in general, we have academic standards that are declining. A number of higher education, including the Ivy League higher education, is getting rid of standardized testing, things like SAT and ACT scores. The average GPA is increasing because they are reducing the requirements for getting higher GPAs. And all the while, the IQ is decreasing amongst these graduates. So you have students who are entering the workforce with more credentials, lower intelligence, and less ability. College education, because it's flooded the marketplace, becomes a meaningless generic standard instead of of an indicator of ability. And then you have other problems related to it, like you have uh, society over-promising for students who then underperform. So diversity, inclusion, equity initiatives, they end up putting people in situations where they have increased competition that they're not ready for, and then they disproportionately fail within that context which would happen to anybody who has the same credentials, no matter their race or gender. Then the institution, to avoid claims of racism or sexism, has to lower the standards to rectify the failure rate. For example, there was a a Times UK story that was reporting how Oxford University was making an attempt to, quote, decolonize maths and science. And yes, they call it maths. (laughs) And one of the means that they were using to do this was to let any student who says they were affected by the BLM issues to seek lenient marking in testing. But the whole thing is that this has to be extended throughout all of society. So there was one study about MCAT scores and GPA that showed that black and Hispanic applicants were accepted at dramatically higher rates with lower MCAT and GPA scores. And you pair that with a study that looks at the relationship between medical licensing examination scores and medical practice from the National Library of Medicine, and it shows that there's a strong correlation between high scores and good medical practice. So what do you end up having? You end up having worse results for everybody across the board, a society that has to buttress particular students and particular educational contexts with greater costs and worse outcomes for anybody who has to partake in those situations, who has to partake in that medical treatment or any other part of society or any other discipline that they might run into. This is <laughs> the worst possible thing that we could be doing related to education, and it's broadly advocated by many of our political elites and social elites. But there's more, <laughs> because it makes a lot of sense, actually. It also means that we're going to have a dumber elite class in general. So we have elites with lower IQs that are more sure of themselves because they have the credentials. That's why I mentioned the Dunning-Kruger effect earlier. 
And that's one thing, just personally and anecdotally, I've met a tremendous number of really stupid people within the last, you know, couple of years that have high earnings because they have, like, a government job or they've been doing the same job for decades. So this sense of accomplishment, it makes you feel like you've done something right, so therefore you have this overdeveloped sense of ability in every aspect. And I was talking to somebody recently um, discussing, you know, political issues that are in the news, we'll say, (laughs) and there was a complete lack of understanding or knowledge about the base issue or the factors that go into the base issue or even ability to be able to discuss in a meaningful way the moving parts of this base issue. But there was also absolute certainty, and this person does very well financially. And this is something I've seen over and over and over again. It really explains kind of the childishly certain support for Democrats amongst that elite class. And it also explains the emotional reaction to the Trump era because people with lower IQs, and that's how they compensate, but who believe because uh, they have professional degrees or whatever, they're in this elite class, they overestimate their competence in, in every area, especially politics, because they're credentialed. So one of the worst things about this whole situation is that it was happening and obviously happening under our noses for decades. And it's something that people got annoyed with, you know, participation trophies and the Carl Rogerfication of education standards. And I know, obviously, Jordan Peterson talks about Carl Rogers in the treatment context and how important the method is. What is it? Unmitigated positive regard or something like that uh, to create trust with you and your, your patient. When it comes to education and a bunch of teachers who are now pretending to be mental health care professionals and therefore willing to abrogate the things that were have been useful for hundreds of years when it came to trying to teach somebody something. You know, uniform standards, uh, elevating the people who did well, and chastising, or whatever uh, euphemistic word you want to use for it, the people who didn't do well. Even though that has uh, negative emotional repercussions, those kinds of things, just like we were talking about with the last book, The Archaeology of Mind, those have useful effects on society. You should shame people who do poorly at things. In school, they they learn it in a, a more neutral, controlled way. You know, out in society, they don't they don't realize how to deal with that. They don't have the tools. They're not equipped to be able to deal with that once they get out into society. And so they have to change society to to be more accommodating of their emotional state, rather than having dealt with these kinds of things growing up and throughout school and realizing that there's a benefit to hard work and there's a benefit to managing conflicts in a positive way. But what we're doing is long-term, we are stripping away the things that used to give people meaning and uh, reason to aspire to something. When you get a bunch of kids into school and all you're telling them is they're perfect, you're, you're great, exactly as you are, however you want to be today or tomorrow or any other day, whatever it happens to be, yeah, it's great, it's perfect. What aspirations arise out of that? What reason do they have to try to be better at something or try to accomplish something great? If no matter what they do, they're perfect. And this, again, it comes back to it, that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. You think you're doing something good for a child when you tell them, oh, no, you're great, you're wonderful, and all those sorts of platitudes, when you're really not. It's really damaging to a kid to have them stunted in their intellectual and emotional growth at childhood because they're given no direction. They're not told that this is a good thing to do, this is a bad thing to do. And long term, we have to suffer the consequences of that. So anyway, that's, uh, I mean, there are so many millions of things, and this actually leads into the next part, is that I am looking for the best books on education that anybody can find. I want to know everything there is to know about education just in general. 
I have about 36 books saved right now in my reading list that I'm going to be reading related to education, and I might read one uh, in between this tranche of five and the next one, and just do an episode on that. But I also have the list of five books. But any uh, suggestions when it comes to education, you know, I have a lot of the basic ones and some not-so-basic ones, so any books on how to make the education system better, I don't care from what side it is, because I'll tear it apart if it's wrong, and I will be thankful to learn whatever I can from uh, any book that we run into. The next five books, however, are going to be... So the name of this book really annoys the hell out of me because I just want to say the name of the city, but it's a play, you know, it's a pun on that. San Francisco is the political book for the next five. We have Frankenstein's The Fiction on the Top 100 Fiction. Churchill, A Life, it's biography. We're going to be reading that too. I just, you know, biographies are the easiest to read at any given time. They're really easy to follow. They have a linearity and they're usually in chronological order. They're just really easy to follow, so that's nice. Uh, The book of Genesis. Yes, that book of Genesis. We are going to read and discuss, although it's going to be so woefully inadequate to try to discuss that, which had so much scholarship on it for a couple thousand years now. 3,000 years worth of scholarship, and we're going to try to discuss it. And A Conflict of Visions, back to Thomas Sowell, is going to be another one that we're looking at. I don't actually know what that one's about, but it's a Thomas Sowell book, so I'm sure uh, he's going to keep his track record of blowing me away with every book that we've read of his. But those are the five books that we're looking at. San Francisco, San Francisco, Frankenstein, Churchill of Life, The Book of Genesis, and A Conflict of Visions. And the education book that I think I'm going to read as kind of a, a one-off that'll be in between is uh, Betsy Devis's how do you say her name? Betsy Devos? Devos? I don't know. Betsy Devos's book. She has a new book called Hostage No More, I think it's called. So we're going to read that and see what she has to say about the education system. She, uh, I heard an interview with her. She was the former education secretary, I guess, under Trump. So, of course, has been uh, vilified and demonized nonstop ever since. But we're going to read her book. It's not especially long. It's kind of long. Uh, and we still need to... I Yes, I know. Okay, I know what you guys are saying. We still need to finish The Rise of statistical thinking. I have about 200 more pages left of that, so I will finish that. I just want to keep it rolling. So those are the five. Fourth, I wanted to finish that book over the 4th of July weekend, but I was having way too much fun. It was it was an amazing 4th of July celebration that extended the weekend, so I didn't get around to it. But we will get it finished, and we'll have these five next, which I think is a good collection, and then we'll go from there. I hope all is well. I'll see you in the next one. Okay, bye.